You're very welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. This is episode number three. We have had a brilliant response for our first two episodes. We're looking at football world and COVID-19 and the GA world. Today is a little bit different. We've shifted over to the SNC and sports science world on purpose. We've got Ross Bennett here for the first part and then for the second part of our podcast and video up on YouTube. We would like to welcome in Ben Smalley, who's a sports scientist and SNC coach with Queen's Park Rangers Academy as well. So a nice little uh, environment and, and interaction between the three of us. We work together, so it might be interesting, some stimulating conversation. The reason we're putting this out is a bonus episode aimed towards SNC coaches and sports scientists, obviously normal coaches as well. But for you guys, if you work in football, if you're interested in football or you want to get into the industry, or professional sport in general, head over to the website. We've got a special coupon uh, for dailysportscience.com. It's football SS, as in football sports science, all capital letters. Just plug that into the voucher code and you'll get a nice big percentage off. We won't say it out, but you'll see anyway. I think it'll be a really good deal for you guys. Uh, Soccer Ecology group as well. Remember, you've got your code as well, so take a look at that. Okay, so first part of this uh, podcast, we're go I'm going to be speaking with Ross Bennett about max speed, and then second half, then we'll follow up a little bit with Ben Smalley, and then we'll go on to some information about getting into the industry as a young sports science graduate, and some of the topics around that. Remember to subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and you'll get all our great videos each week. Okay, have a listen. I'm here with Ross Bennett, Head of Performance. Again, today we're going to have a look at the max speed, max velocity work. Ross, this is different than the acceleration, deceleration, change of direction that you've previously done blogs and vlogs on. We're now moving on to the max speed work. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, obviously, I think it's um, fair to say it's different in the way we're doing it, adapting with the time. So uh, before we were sitting next to each other, it was quite nice. Now we're, now we're remote. So... Yeah, different screens. But yeah, so this is the third one in the series, Kiz, um, that we obviously would have liked to have got done a lot quicker um, in the series. But now we're getting round to the third one, the max velocity, which obviously is going to cover, obviously going to cover the last part of the, the locomotive skills that we've, we've produced. So, Ross, you're going to take us through the max speed work. Um, can you give us a bit of an introduction first about how max speed work differs, differs than acceleration and change of direction and everything? Yeah, for sure, kids. And like we spoke in all the other locomotive stuff, there is obviously some crossover between different characteristics, but that's fine. I guess max velocity work and max speed work is essentially getting a player up to their max speed. So I think of it in really simple terms in distances. Um, acceleration phase goes up to 15 meters, roughly, depending on the individual. Now we're looking at 30, 40 50 meters even, making it really contextual to the sport, but also to the, the distance that you want to, to develop. Yeah, so are there any other differences then from just working on acceleration uh, in terms of max speed? So there's the, the distances. So you as a coach then, you're going to be telling the, the players that if you're setting up a, a max speed drill, it's just in terms of setting up 40 meters or 50 meters, correct? In its purest form, yeah, obviously there's different um, drills we can do to supplement, let's say, running mechanics, which we'll talk about in a little bit um, in a bit more detail. But 
essentially then the distance will dictate the type of running it is. And, and if you're telling an athlete or a player to go maximal for 40, 50 meters, yes, there's a, a phase of acceleration in there, of course, for the first 10, 15 meters, but then you're becoming into your max speed running style, uh, which is essentially this sort of skill we're looking to, to, to develop more. Yeah, so ju just on that then, so the coaching points are different, aren't they? Obviously, you're, you're going to be looking at different little different aspects of the running style. Can you just go into a little bit about the big difference between acceleration over 10 to 20 meters versus max speed over 30 or all the way up to 60, 70 meters? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's important that we revisit the acceleration stuff just so we get a little bit of context. But of course, when you're accelerating, you're going from either like a standing still or very um, low velocity in terms of the speed you're moving at. And you're trying to get to quickly as as quick as you can, essentially trying to move quicker um, within a certain time frame. So you have to start to change your body to be able to enable yourself to do that. So things like producing force horizontally so that's why we encourage players to lead forward um, as much as they can within their capabilities they spend a little bit longer on the ground in the first acceleration phase when they're ground striking because they need to generate force with the ground um, so you'll see more choppier steps but you'll also see steps that are potentially more higher in um, ground contact time so ground contact time is longer when you then shift into closer to your max velocity and you start to hit your peak speed, you'll see a, a change in the mechanics naturally in the player. So they'll become more upright, which is fine because what happens then is once you've accelerated to your maximum speed, it's all about maintenance of your speed. So yes, we can still accelerate and get faster in a top speed running style, but the, the whole point of it is that you want to get players to be able to produce the required force quickly on the ground so contact time is really quick and you see more of a cyclical nature so quite an upright stance quite a quickness movement of the legs um, and you get quite a lot of stiffness on the ground as well so you get this real forward lean to accelerate and longer on the ground and more choppy steps so when a player comes more upright and it's about trying to maintain that speed with really short time frames enabling them to do it with quick contacts on the ground that links on quite well then to the gym work doesn't it because in some ways, uh, maximizing your acceleration ability, deceleration ability, where there's huge ground contact uh, forces, uh, ground reaction forces, and greater contact time is one specific part of the gym work. And then your max speed work is kind of entering into a different aspect of your gym work. Yeah, 100%. So like you said, in terms of the first initial, we spoke about this briefly in the previous blog, uh, blog it's more around you know, concentric power, concentric strength, getting athletes really strong to be able to produce force on the ground. Now it becomes more about stiffness and supply metrics are really prevalent here, really important. So quite high stress clothes in terms of bounding, um, obviously it depends on the athlete's capability and you take them through being able to land, being able to jump effectively first, but ultimately you're taking them through a series of whether it will be pogos, whether it be small hurdle jumps, whether it be big hurdle jumps, bilateral, unilateral, but your real coaching cue is to get contact time as small as it can, because that's going to have the greatest transfer to maintaining your max speed or within that kind of running mechanic. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I saw some stats as regards in football and in GA as well, the, the average distance for, for 
uh, your sprint is very, very short. It's only 10 meters, it's 15 meters. Now, a lot of times that will be from a, a flying start. But actually, those max speed works in the game are often related to the critical moments in the match. So getting in and getting the goal or sprinting back and recovering in defender. So it's a real important aspect of performance, isn't it? 100%. And like you say, it might only happen two or three times, but you're right in that instance that it does happen. It's typically a moment where, I don't know, you're either out of balance in a position and you've got where there's a bit of space to be exploited in the invasion game or you're exploiting that space in an attacker. Um, performance, obviously, then you have to create that kind of... Um, worst case scenario but you also have to make sure they're exposed to that for them from a performance point of view but also from an injury point of view as well because the biggest um, injury especially in the GAA would be hamstring or one of the biggest injuries would be hamstring and because players aren't conditioned enough to run at their max velocity and do it repeatedly when needed um, especially certain positions the midfielders who are up and down all the time uh, in, in soccer you've got the fullbacks the wingers may be on a recovery run or, or depending on where they are on the pitch so position specific but you're right you have to prepare the players for the performance side but also the injury side as well Okay, so it's performance and, and injury basis then. So can you give a little bit of detail of what do we actually mean when we say max speed work and also then uh, how many times per week are you looking to hit your max speed or close to that percentage? Yeah, there's a lot of differences in, in opinions within practitioners and, and even research. You know, it's quite um, running faster max speed. Development's been around for years, but actually making sure we we condition our players enough and, and what percentage we need to condition them is something that's quite a hot topic. Um, we like to use anywhere between 85% and above, but ideally, if you're looking really to get them, you're trying to get them as close to 100% as you can, or even past 100% if you're looking to improve performance. So when we do our max speed work, the minimum requirement is 85% as a, as a speed exposure, but we're looking to get them as close to 100%, if not further on the other occasion to, to try and get a new max speed. So we would do this in season where you've got weekly games. We would The, the game would typically bring out um, a max speed exposure, minimum of one to two for 80, 85% of players. A couple of positions, obviously the goalkeeper wouldn't get one in a game. Two centre-halves, a touch and go, depending on the, the situation. Everybody else would typically get a, a speed exposure in a game. But then you're looking for those players then to at least do one more session a week which is focused on speed. And for the players that didn't get that speed exposure, the question is then when do you try to get that exposure? Because, you know, they still played a full game or, or maybe a full game. It seems to me incorrect morally um, and also physiologically to try and get them to sprint then after a game because they haven't hit it. So it, you're definitely looking for one to two exposures a week. Um, if they get it in a game, then definitely two. You'd prefer the, the approach then to actually those guys who haven't played or haven't played much, get them into the dressing room after the game, get them home, and then in the following days get their speed exposure or get their conditioning at least in that period then? Yeah, I think, I think if it's a person that hasn't played or they've only played 15, 20 minutes, then I think it's fine to do so on the day. If it's someone then that's played 90 minutes, for, for example, a centre-half, that he hasn't hit his speed because of the context of the game, then you might, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it on that day. You might still wait till Tuesday, for example, and then he does speed work Tuesday, Thursday. Yeah. 
Okay, interesting. What do you think then about, so a lot of athletics coaches have started to come into the professional football world and into the GA world as well, where they're coming in and doing some speed mechanic work, work on one hand, but also like a lot of marching and A skips and B skips and stuff like that. Is there a place for that? Um, yeah, yeah, there is a place. There is, I'm thinking out loud here because uh, I've got mixed views on this and it changes all the time. Um, there's definitely a place. And I think that if you're trying to, like we did in the other qualities, we're trying to create shapes and we're trying to give the athletes little pointers and, and more efficient ways of moving in certain, in certain scenarios. So I do think that A skips to B skips are good for just scaffolding. Like we spoke about before, scaffolding certain patterns and shapes that you want them to hit when they're running in certain phases. But I have to say, I don't think there's much transfer to, to the sprinting itself. And I know there's... A, an ideal kind of technical model that you want to create for performance and for injury but I have to stress I don't think I've seen much change in any player that I've worked with across all the phases and all the years in his technical um, his technical model we've definitely seen changes in his speed and his development and coming from whether that's gym-based work transferring to actually him running fast or her running fast on the pitch but I'm not sure on the transfer of these sort of kind of closed running mechanic skills that you would find in athletics to the performance. And maybe that's because we don't have the time to spend on it repetitively. Whereas in athletics, that's going to be part of their daily routine. We're, um, we're trying to develop so many different qualities and different fitness aspects that we might only touch upon it once a week, twice a week, maybe. So there's lots of variables, but at the moment, I'm not sure. And it'd be really good to get a real good dialogue around this sort of stuff between practitioners as well. Yeah, in, in Gaelic games, and especially in professional football, it's very much a skill-based sport, isn't it? And like you mentioned, there are so many different aspects that you need to work on. We did a video and a, 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 a podcast a few days ago just about the four-corner approach of technical, tactical, physical, psychosocial, emotional mentality there's so many aspects whereas in athletics ultimately you have to run very fast from a to b and that's that's the only thing you need to take care of alongside psychosocial and everything like that but it's a little bit different in in the team sports isn't it yeah 100 percent. and also if you think of like an athletic say a sprinter his technical element is his technical running um, style. Mm. Whereas in a sport like this, the technical side is actually the technique of receiving the ball, different ball skills. So th their whole um, goal is to make sure that running style and the speed is is at the top of their game. Whereas in football, there's so many things that someone could run really fast, but his control could be could be horrendous, or he can't yeah. do what he's required positionally. He doesn't have an understanding of where he should be on the pitch. So it's kind of it's irrelevant that he can actually run maximally. So you have to spread the time evenly to where it's suited to the player and also to, to that team. Yeah. Now, are you saying then that by the time you, be, you come to being a youth, an under-18 or adult player, you can't get faster? Like, surely there are, there are still ways, obviously, we're trying to maximise that person's speed, aren't we? Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, 100% caution, get faster. And that's our job as well, to, to make them as physically um, reaching their potential as they can and as physically hitting their peak as, as, as high as we can get them. But I think we do it in different ways. I don't think we're going to necessarily get massive increases through lots of different 
technical A skip, B skip type drills. I think A, we have to focus on actually making them physiologically better. So the work you're doing in the gym. So strength, power, work was the base. And then like we spoke about the stiffness and the, the higher level plyometrics alongside the, the conditioning for the hamstrings in particular for the for sprinting, but also then actually putting them in scenarios where they're actually running fast and understanding that their technical model might not be when you compare it to a top level sprinter. Although very interesting picture came out from Keir rugby strength coach on Twitter around Usain Bolt this week and kind of looked at his yeah. first six steps and technically they was so poor compared to the the model sprinting so I think we have to be careful of what we're looking for in the players for me if it's safe um, if the technical model is safe then and they're quite good in terms of performance then I don't think we need to tinker too much but of course we can get them faster we, we run them on the pitch in terms of getting them exposed to velocity, the right amount of higher velocity work in the week. We do the gym work and you're confident over time they're going to get quicker and develop. Yeah, absolutely. And it was an interesting point that the rugby strength coach made, wasn't it? It, 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 it challenges people's thinking about what is the perfect model. It's like the age-old saying of that, if you want to get faster, run fast, isn't it? Do repetitions. That links on then. So is there a place in underage? So in school boys or underage kids, is there a place for technical model and coaching points? Do you just do fun races with them? Do you do, is there any point in doing max speed? Is, there, is that a possibility at that age? Or what, what would your approach be? Yeah, um, I think with the young, young ones, so, I mean, we're quite fortunate here at the club, QPR, that we have the young ones from 9s to 11s, 12s, what we call the foundation phase. And I think with those guys, you don't touch them with any technical drill or detail. You just put them in different races that expose them to different um, distances. So you get them really um, moving in loads of different ways. And hopefully they're starting to kind of figure out their different running styles. And also you have to remember that kids of that age aren't going to have much strength. So they're going to adopt quite an upright running style from practically the first two steps. So you're coaching around acceleration and leaning forward and good contact on the ground. It becomes irrelevant for the young kids because they haven't got the physiology to do it. So you're just giving them lots of different variation, um, and but you are exposing them 100% to 30 meters, 40 meters, which to them is relatively quite a long distance. Um, when you then get into your growth spurts, so what we call the youth development phase over here, but around 13, 14, 15, then yes, I think because coordination is compromised and because people are getting taller, they're getting maybe a little bit weaker, their limbs are stretching, you have to then expose them to some coordination type running drills that just reminds them of basic coordination and simple things of just walking marches. And, and But you can do it in quite a fun way as well. It doesn't have to be straight line. And they're still kids. They still need variation. They still need engagement. Um, but you would start to introduce some sort of running mechanics, but not too much, just to give them an idea. And then you might give them some pointers of when they're actually doing their runs, their faster runs. Um, and then that kind of leads you into kind of the top end YDP, PDP, where things become a bit more about performance. And again, things that we spoke about, the gym work's essential, getting them to run fast, you know, but tracking how much they're running fast over the week. Um, and also some technical detail around the, uh, around the sprinting, max sprinting as well. Okay, great. La last question then. I'm a coach, for instance, and I say that, well, I only want to do my, max, my players' max speed work with the ball. What's the point in getting them sprinting? They're not sprinters. They're not 
uh, we're not athletics, we're football, and I just want to introduce the ball all the time and work on our max speed. Yeah, it's, it's something that we come across, you know, quite a bit amongst technical coaches. Um, the one thing I always say to technical coaches is that if you actually look at how many, how many times the player is actually on the ball in whatever sport um, throughout the whole game, it's actually very, very minimal to compare to when they're off it, around off the top of my head, trying to go across many sports, 5%, sometimes even lower, 1% to 5%, depending on the player. So they are going to have to run without the ball in so many different contexts, whether it's movement off the ball, whether it's tracking a runner, uh, whether it's creating space for someone else, whether the ball's been slid in and he's got to get himself onto the ball or herself onto the ball. There's so many scenarios where they're going to have to run without the ball. Um, so I think you need to look at them in two different skills. I think you have to make sure they can run and the skill of running is developed and practiced, but also the ability to run fast with the ball, especially in certain positions, is important, especially in Gaelic when the mechanics become massively different because every four steps you have to hop or solo. So it is important to do stuff with the ball, but it's also important to understand that you have to isolate that skill and work on max speed as well. Okay, brilliant. We, we'll move on to some of the technical uh, drills and practices that you've come up with. Just remember for people, subscribe to our podcast, our new podcast, The Locker Room. You'll find it on all different podcast um, websites and, and Apple Podcasts as well. Head over to the website, dailysportscience.com. Lots of good offers up there at the moment and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm here with Ross Bennett, Head of Performance of QPR Academy and DSS. Uh, Ross, you're just going to run through a few little practices to work on max speed work. Yeah, we're just going to, so we just spoke about a bit of theory and just a few little things around it. I'm just going to give some ideas on different ways that you can develop this because I think it's really, I think coaches will be able to get their players to run um, fast over 40, 50 metres. That's quite, and that's an important part of it. But then we can maybe show them different ways to make it more game specific or challenge the max speed work in different, in different ways. Okay, great. Right. So let's run through a few. Perfect. Okay, so if you remember the continuum, I know it's been a while since we've released the last vlog, but we work off a continuum when we're developing these skill sets of closed, uh, making things then more open and reactive, and then chaos. Now, with max speed, it's not as easy, let's say, as change of direction and agility to fit into that, um, into that continuum, because essentially you still need them to run fast, and you don't want to compromise that too much. But I'm going to give some examples on here of how we can take them through the continuum. The first one is, is, I'm sure everyone, I don't want to make people suck eggs, but it's a very simple one to make it close skill, is that you just simply have whatever distance you want to work on, you just have um, a straight runway. We call it a max speed runway, so this might give you some different ideas. So, well, we, 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 we call it the heat, the heat, row, the heat yeah. row express runway. <laughs> yeah, we did call it. I think you nicked this off Leicester, I think, originally. <laughs> and then we, so we have to give Leicester a shout out, and then we changed Matt. it to... Matt, Matt Reeves, uh, I think we nicked it from Leicester City. They went on to win the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a good source to take it from. But. And, we, and we started using it and QPR got relegated, I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so, yeah, but um, it's, it's really, really simple, but it just makes it slightly different to a typical run from A to B because it gives the players a little bit more focus. So you've got – we typically do this in terms of distances – so you've got a 10 meter, can you see that okay kids? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you've got a 10 meter acceleration phase, you've got a 40 meter what we call a max speed phase, maintenance phase, 
uh, and we've got a 10 meter detail phase. Now, we can stretch this out. So if you've got players who are very good at accelerating and they're not gonna be close to 85, 90% or close to 100% after 10 meters, which you probably will have, you can stretch that out to 15, 20, so that by the time they get into their phase, they're pretty close to their max speed. Um, but the whole point is that they run fast from, from point A here, They've got different phases so they can just see visually where they're running, an acceleration phase. And then when they're in this phase then, if they hit their reach uh, max speed or their peak speed, they're asking them to maintain it for that period. And this is where you can tell them about the difference in technical models. And in this phase, you want to become a bit more upright. Your posture's nice and tall. You want to strike under center of mass. You want to be springy off the ground. They're the kind of key um, technical points you're talking about. In there, and then you give them a 10 meter deceleration phase because we still think that decel is important, but you don't want to challenge them too much after they're sprinting for 50 meters. So we think 10 meters is quite ample for for the amount of um, distance they've sprinted. And we we've just put this, um, or we're going to put this drill up on the um, up on the website for the resource as well, so people can see Kieran running really fast in, in the <laughs> max speedway. Um, what what so kind of what what Ross? What kind of repetitions or sets and recovery time are you looking at then? Yeah, so if it's if you're going for max speed gears, then essentially you want quite a long recovery time in between. But I see I see students and I see academics, you know, talk about three four minutes. Now, it textbook. Yeah. Recovery time, yes, you need four minutes to make sure that neural systems completely recovered, etc. etc. But we have to be realistic. If we're doing if we're doing, I don't know, one set of six, for example, as of a max speed, and you're having four minutes rest in between, 35, 40 minutes of the session gone, plus you've got to do your technical work, etc. So you, you have to be really realistic in how you're gonna fit this in. So I just make it simple in terms of max speed. You run the rep there. You walk on the way back slowly on the way back so you feel recovered. Your heart rate's kind of come down to fairly normal, you know, 80, 90 beats, still going to be a little bit elevated. And then when they're ready to go again, they go again. So, and, and normally we do warm up sets, but one, one set of five max runs would yeah. be more than enough. You'd probably do two, three warm up ones. Five, that's quite high level um, sprint session in the team sports. If yeah. you only get two or three maximum reps, you're still going to get a good. 120 to 150 meters high speed running um probably 100 meters of sprint distance as well so yeah more than enough i think it's important to mention as well ross that this is not a conditioning drill isn't it not like this this is a locomotive quality or a skill that you're working on so like you're not looking to really beast players and improve their conditioning and fitness in this no, and, and that's a really good point. And it's about the quality of the run. So if if you give them like only work to rest, if you do an RSA protocol where your work to rest is one to six, then the quality and the speed of the run is going to be really low. It's not going to be, it's probably going to be, you could probably maintain 85% maybe if you're yeah. quite well conditioned, but you're not going to have the speed that you need to really develop this skill. Um, but just on that point, kids, when we introduce players back into the rehab and we start to increase their their, their speed, on the pitch in their rehab uh, program, you can actually do a work to rest of one to six at a certain speed. So you do get some conditioning of hamstrings and high speed running. Um, but when you're yeah. looking then to develop their max speed, then you come off the work to rest ratio and you give them enough recovery that allows them to feel fresh and, and ready to sprint again. Yeah. What period of the training session would you be looking to do this in a normal team setting, not in a rehab? So at the beginning when they're completely fresh, 
before you know at, uh, just after the warm up or after a passing practice or at the end of a session yeah i think it has to be at the, the first part of the session now in terms of the way you work and the way different people work within their teams might be slightly different for example at, at london when we worked together we always did some technical work as part of the warm up so we had a, a closed skill or even whatever hand passing drill it was kick passing drill with a physical warm up within the first kind of 10-15 minutes and then we, we would go into this work so you make sure they're fully warm they do warm-up runs etc or if you work very traditional in the sense that you have the first 10-15 minutes with the sports science snc then you do it within that first part but yeah. you wouldn't really do this at the end of training i think that if they train hard enough and it's been a fairly taxing session the injury risk is obviously higher and the quality of the speed you're going to get is going to be low okay great great so moving on then to, to more open skill and, and reactive skill, it's, it gets trickier, doesn't it? Yeah, before we go to that, though, Kiers, I just want to talk about something that we've introduced this year and something I think that's quite prevalent in the, in the sprinting world and development. And talking about not just running in straight lines and talking about this curve running concept, because if you think about a lot of the running that players would do within their game scenario, it's probably not going to be always in a straight line. They're going to have to make good angles. They're going to have to curve and run, whether it's beating the offside track whether in Gaelic it's running in behind, you're not making it predictable, um, or you're moving to receive the ball. It's not always going to be as simple as straight line running. So we are just put a couple of scenarios that we've done um, in terms of what we're filming and got coming up onto the, onto the website. We just, obviously, you still need to keep the speed high, right? So you can do this however you want to do this on a pitch. Um, let's just say, so start position A, start position B, and you literally, so same principles apply in terms of distance, and you're just seeing whether they can maintain their kind of max speed, similar to a 200 meter bend. If you think of the first bend, you just kind of, but maybe a little bit smaller distances, around 40, 50 meters. You're just seeing whether they can maintain good speed, but also manipulate their body. So they're having to lean a little bit while still in this technical element, because it is a different skill. So not too much not too fast on the technical detail of how they lean but it's just putting them in scenarios that they can practice this skill um and then that can kind of be progressed on to obviously more more aggressive cuts and stuff that we've done here where you can have kind of a u-turn and again this would be measured out to be probably or you can make it random it's entirely up to you um, and you're just getting them to lean lean around the bend as they're running so just a couple of different ideas you've got a, a c run if you like there over a larger distance and you've got a u run there as well so yeah. and obviously you need to do it off both sides so you're challenging them off both sides and if you do it yourself it's actually quite an interesting concept of trying to maintain your speed and curving around around the bend so that's yeah. probably the next one i just want to speak about that's okay yeah absolutely a, a really good one as well you can do potentially is is chasing games can't you like it, it, around the curve where one person starts off two meters ahead of the other and they're like that's really high-end max speed work then isn't it exactly and when you and that that's where you kind of take it to more reactive and and kind of chaotic even though you know that you're going to start there and finish there you're going off the player's speed and that's when you're going to really hit their peak speeds because if you get the, the matchups right and you get people at similar speeds the competitive in the players is going to drive that speed a little bit more so 100% you're correct you definitely would start a session on here maybe the first week you start here so that they get used to the movement and it's probably something new same as that really and then you can add in a, a race or a partner chase where you give someone one meter head start and they've got to try and chase him down yeah brilliant okay
Welcome back to the second half of the Locker Room podcast. So in the first half, we spoke to Ross Bennett, head of performance at Queen's Park Rangers FC Academy, all about max speed development. I'm delighted then to welcome in Ben Smalley, who, as I mentioned in the intro, is a sports scientist, S&C coach in QBR Academy as well. And we're just going to have a chat about the max speed. Ben, you're very welcome. Do you want to initially just have a quick uh, intro about where you work, what you've done, where you are in your education and accreditation, just to give the listeners a bit of a, a background of, of your career. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Kieran, cheers for having me on. So um, I guess like sporty kid, went to um, University of Birmingham, studied sports science. Um, Realised I wanted a career in sport quite quickly. I think I spent my basically my whole second and third year interning, uh, four to six days a week really. Um, kids as young as 10, as old as 18, uh, football, tennis, rugby, cricket. Um, and then was lucky enough to um, get the job offer to intern as a, as a postgrad um, with QPR and Ross and, and yourself. And at the same time this year, this current year, um, studying at Middlesex University, doing a strength and conditioning master's. So a busy year for me, but um, been good so far. Yeah, so you're balancing a lot of things, aren't you? So you've got your your MSc, your job, now job in Queen's Park Rangers, um, looking to go through some different accreditation pathways as well. And this is probably typical, isn't it, for a lot of graduates and people looking to break into the industry? Yeah, 100%. I think I was someone, I was almost in a bit of a rush. So I wanted to get stuff done as soon as possible. I know quite a lot of people might do the master's route alongside a job and um, and then go for the practical experience. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get it done as quickly as possible, um, get as much practical experience in as, as soon as possible. And I think that's the best route to do so. So, Okay, brilliant. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll shoot on over to your boss, Ross Bennett. <laughs> Ross, you're very welcome back. We're in a different um, studio today, so we're shooting on a, on a different day, the second half. So we'll get on to, to Ben and, and um, your appraisal of him. We're going to have live on air appraisal of how he's done in QPR Academy. Um, but do you want to have a, a quick word about Ben first and then we get into maybe you can move on to the continuum of max speed? Go easy, Ross. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll, do, we'll do the appraisal now. Uh, he didn't know that. He hasn't prepared. No, um, no. Just in all, we'll we'll get onto the stuff around breaking into industry because you know, even though a lot's changed in the last five ten years, and there's lots of people like Ben in the last five years who've wanted to break into sport. And you know, Ben has come in as an intern. I was very very impressed from day one from seeing him. Um, and within the years, internships turned into a part time job. So that's credit where credit's due. And there's lots of processes behind that and reasons why maybe maybe Ben's got to where he's got to already in his career. So we can talk about that later. But listen, I'm delighted to have Ben as part of our department, um, trying to, to grow the department as, big, as, as good as we can within our limited resources and as uh, innovative as we can. Um, and I think Ben's uh, an integral part of that. So delighted to have him on the podcast. I think he's going to have massive insight and give a lot to the listeners. Um, so hopefully we'll get into the nitty gritty and, and talk about Max Speed a bit more. Yeah, so it's great. And, and getting Ben involved in, in dailysportscience.com is really good as well. We have a new initiative just being launched this week as well. So anybody head over to the website, click on the webinars page. And on that page, and you'll see all the upcoming weekly webinars that are online, both paid and free, predominantly are free really, 
out in the industry for coaching and sports science and SNC. Um, you can actually register with all those webinars through the website. So, and we'll be putting it out on Twitter each, each week as well. So have, take a look at that if you can. Ross, right, let's get back into the max speed work. So we spoke a lot about the theory behind it. You also gave some examples of the initial closed skill max speed work uh, with the, the Heathrow Runway Express that we spoke about. Um, do you want to just remind our listeners then about people who've seen the videos will be up to speed on this, our members. Um, but just as regards the continuum going from closed to open onto chaotic and just a the, the, the little bit of the theory around, around that. Yeah, um, I think that's important to talk about. And obviously this, this continuum spreads across the different locomotive qualities that we want to develop or we try to develop um, the locomotive skill aspects of it as well as the, the, the physiological benefit of, of getting them to do these certain modalities. So we had the XLD cell um, kind of focus, we had the change of direction shifting into the agility, and then now we're looking at the max speed. And the continuum works from a very close skill uh, where there's not much thought process or decision making going on. So it kind of lends into max speed quite nicely with the, with the runway, as you said, Kiers. Um, just getting them to run from A to B as fast as they can um, in a very, very, like I said, close skill environment, but just focusing on them getting up to certain percentages of max speed um, and working on certain technical elements, if depending on how much depth you want to go into. That will then shift along the continuum to then becoming more reactive, um, where there starts to become more of a cognitive um, stress to the, to the players. Um, and then that shifts on then to being completely chaotic, where you've got to perform potential locomotive skill under quite a high cognitive demand which essentially is the replicating scenarios in the game itself um, so that's the continuum in a nutshell obviously when you take the max speed through that continuum it can be slightly problematic because there's a trade-off between the amount of cognitive demand and reactive type stuff that goes on with the player in in a certain practice or exercise or or game scenario with the actual physiological outcome that you want from it in terms of getting them up to a certain um, percentage of max speed. And that session design is really important depending on which one you want to lean towards. Yeah, you have to be careful, don't you? Because you can't compromise actually the distance and the, and the speeds at which you're working at. Because when you introduce the reactive element to it, and especially the chaotic, players react in different ways, don't they? So there can be a lot of cutting, stopping, starting, accel, decel, so you want to make sure, which is fine if you want to work on that, but if you specifically want to work on reactive or chaotic max speed work, well then, like we mentioned in the first half, you need to make sure that you're running fast. So you need to be up and around 90, 95% of max speed, certainly over 85, and you need a lot of distance to hit that speed. So you have to make sure that you're not compromising that when you do it. Yeah, like you said, 100%. And, and it just depends on what your focus is of the session. If you want to put them in a scenario where the cognitive um, processes at high speeds is going to be the main focus, then you might take a little bit of a hit on the actual percentage they get to and the distance they, they spend in their sp uh, sprint distance, etc. Um, so it just depends on where you want to program. But obviously, if, you, if max speed exposure and development of max speed is the focus then you have to just really take that into consideration when you're developing the, the design yeah i know it's hard over a podcast um uh, but do you have any idea of a couple of little drills or practices that you can do just to explain to listeners for 
re reactive or open max speed and then chaotic? Yeah, um, I think we can explain it best we can for, and I think it will paint a good picture in people's minds. Um, I always work off a principle of 1v1 stuff. So the 1v1 domination, having some sort of attacker, defender, someone chasing, someone leading. I think that leads in quite nicely to the principles within the game, especially around defending individual, attacking as individual, um, into the principles of play. So we look at, you can do two different things. You can just get someone in a 1v1 scenario and you can work them like laterally, like a mirror drill, which is all, which is pr we've put out on social media and it's pretty um, open in terms of people doing that anyways. People understand the kind of mirror drill, but you can do that in any plane. So you can do it lateral in terms of a frontal plane, in a sagittal plane, you can mix the, the planes together and you just get a player following someone else. So it's 1v1 within a certain time frame, or um, you give complete ownership to the attacking player of when they want to kind of um, take the defender where he wants to go. But more importantly, after that, so after you've got a period of 1v1 in a certain area, you have to have them then like sprinting, um, ideally up to about 40 metres, where the defender's chasing the attacker, whether that's running past him, so the defender has to turn off the shoulder, or whether it's lateral again, where the defender has to chase him to a certain um, cone or certain area, certain distance. So you start off very small in a 1v1 scenario, and then when the attacker wants to or decides to go, then he sprints to a certain distance and defender has to chase him. Um, I hope that's answered it a little bit. It's obviously quite hard without showing, showing the exact drill, but it's, it's really important that you don't overestimate the time of the first part because you want the quality of the max speed. So you make sure that the first 1v1 in a small area is quite short in duration, nothing more than 10 seconds, because that's quite fatiguing. Um, or you even make it slightly sub-maximal, so it's not always maximal for the attacker or defender. And then when they decide to sprint over longer distances, that's a real chase at maximum speed. Yeah, it's a good point, because sometimes you see it, don't you, where a max speed drill can become a little bit of a fitness workout, whereby the, the, the recovery time between repetitions is not long enough, or like you say, that initial little bit of work, there's too much focus put on that. Whereas in reality, all you're doing there is putting them into a somewhat match-specific or sport-specific situation in order to get that outcome then of, of the max speed. But I like that continuum because you're starting off from a very close prescribed drill where you're telling people to run fast, accelerate, decelerate, moving along to being open and reactive, and then eventually to being very chaotic, and it becomes very, very match-specific. And sometimes, some players are good at different points along the continuum, and it's interesting to actually identify where your kind of window of opportunity is and what, where each player has to work on those aspects. Ben, so you've been having a look at uh, the max speed of the QPR players, the academy players then uh, throughout the season. So it's quite an interesting topic about how you actually can program this max speed work into your season uh, when you've got a match every single weekend. I know in academy football, we obviously say that the matches don't really matter. Um, but And it's all about development. But it's quite interesting point then to think, well, where can you actually program this into the the overall season-long plan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, Kieran. I think um, within a team sport setting where there's such a busy schedule and technical coaches want, you know, so much time with their athletes, it's about finding those sort of windows of opportunity. 
to get the best sort of you know best adaptations and prepare the athletes for for that biomotor you're trying to develop right so in a particular week you may have your day where you're focused on is on an extensive session and what we do at qpr with ross is um we dedicate our am training so our 10 to 15 minute warm-up slot to have a specific focus on that max speed element i like to i like to think of like developing developing qualities and sort of themes so i think when you're looking at windows of opportunity within the microcycle, I think pre-activation is definitely one where you can prep the tissue um, that's going to be exposed in that max speed sprinting. I think you can potentiate for the session as well outdoors with some plyos. Um, and that's when you're going to be looking at your, your vectors. So a more vertical dominance um, with sprinting. Then you can go outside and you can obviously incorporate drills into your warm up, and then obviously free sprinting and work, work through your continuum. And then you can obviously go into your, um, technical session and other coaches may be incorporating it within the session, middle of the session, at the end of the session. But again, that's going to depend on the context of your, of your coach and your, your setup. Yeah, it's, an, it's a nice integration with the coaching model as well. And, and that shows you the soft skills importance of the sports scientist and SNC coach working with the technical coaches so that knowing that it's an extensive session and what are the kind of things that they're going to be working on. And it means that potentially then that uh, you can scaffold that session then by working on your extensive longer distance high speed working, isn't it? So in, in the mic micro cycle then, which is the week long cycle of the plan, where would you normally like to program your, your speed working then, Ben? Uh, so for me, uh, I think me and Ross differ on this, like slightly. Mm -hmm. So a like a, well, not a traditional model, but I think a lot of the Prem clubs at the moment, a lot of academy clubs, I'm sure, are programming max speed on a Thursday morning um, as part of their extensive day. Um, for me, I would be doing it on the Tuesday morning. So match day plus three, match day minus four. I think that's when athletes are at their freshest, when we're in like the, 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 the role of long-term athletic development. Um, CNS is mostly recovered. They're at their freshest. Max speed is neurologically the most demanding activity you can do. Like nothing in the weight room can replicate it. I just think less, least fatigue, most output, most adaptation. And in, in long-term athletic development, we want that um, adaptation to develop max speed qualities in, in our players. I don't necessarily think on the Thursday is wrong at all. Um, I think I wouldn't do it on the Friday. I wouldn't do it on the Monday. I just think Tuesday AM seems logical for me and probably my biases. It's interesting because if you think of a continental uh, uh, approach, a coaching approach, it's generally you will train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, actually. So you don't yeah. have a Wednesday off, but the traditional British approach to the training week, Ross, is your Wednesday off, which is it's kind of an ideal day. And I found it last day. So we... Myself and Ross um, uh, separately did some speed drills and we filmed ourselves doing it in, in park and in pitches and we did a bit of max speed work and nothing to do with that. I haven't been training for the last nearly five or, <laughs> five or 10 years properly, but I felt it so much. I felt it in my legs, in my back, my shoulders. Like there is no other thing that you can do that probably uh, pushes the body physically as much. But Ross, you're... you're 
you're ready with Ben's P45 and, and you're going to tell him what's what anyway. Listen, I'm glad, I'm glad so early in the podcast we got a difference in already and that's why I encourage. Um, I, think that just show, I, just want to th- I think that just shows that how even though as a department we're working together and we're looking, but what a dynamic we've got at the club and that's where we're trying to, you want people all the time challenging ideas, challenging the tradition, you know, as, as we get older and lose touch with the new research and the, and, and the new stuff, we need people like Ben to come in and to shake things up at time and, and that's important, you know, because it keeps things fresh. But just on that point, and I think it's a really good point that Ben made and it's something that we we've been speaking about um like two things are if you're looking to saturate like a physiological um uh physiological let's say capacity or target within that training session and to really work with the coaches then you might then get a bit of conflict so you might look at max speed work in terms of like the physical outcome in the first 10-15 minutes but then the physical outcome within the session on a Tuesday becomes very much Axel D-cell um, based so you actually don't work completely in tangent with the coaches you kind of work slightly opposing whereas on the, the Thursday then you become more change of direction agility based but then you want the, the coaching work to be a bit more extensive and and I know there's arguments to say well, why don't you flip the coaching side but trust me when you're doing the 1v1s the 2v2s and it's very very hard on the legs like the axle detail work saturated within the training session the small sided games like that takes quite a long time to recover and I'm not sure how comfortable you would be doing that on a Thursday. So they're my questions on, do you want to link the whole physical focus in line with the, the technical practice and really overload and saturate that? Or do you want to work in contrasting, contrasting uh, qualities, I guess? Uh, yeah, no, isn't it? Ben, are you, are you coming back on that? You, you, you're retorting back. <laughs> it's a bit, we've set up a debate. <laughs> okay, no, that's an interesting one because it, it, probably, it probably leads into contextualized scenarios then within, within training. So obviously we want to maximize the physical uh, quality, the locomotive skills um, and the physiological qualities. But of course, at some stage, we have to put them in like not only kind of match specific scenarios within the continuum as a drill or a, a practice, but we need to start introducing them into the actual training, don't we? We need to integrate them into the, the, the tactical focus of that session with the coaches. Um, do we do you want to have a, 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 have a chat about that and just some of the challenges involved trying to get that implemented? Ross, you probably touched on it there trying to get those things implemented with the coaching staff. I mean, we're very lucky with the people that we work with. They're very, very open. Paul Furlong, Chris Ramsey, um, you know, all those guys are really good. Uh, Paul Hall and the MP. But do, do you want to touch on that, just the challenges in, involved in that? Yeah, um, just to, I'll go quickly then I'll hand over to Ben Kids. Um, in terms of, we are very lucky I and mean, we, we have good relationships with our, with our coaching staff and our senior staff, but that that's, that's took a bit of time to build up to. Uh, you, need to you need to do that over time and, and you can't kind of gain, gain that instantly, I don't think. Um, but what you have to remember is as well, the philosophy at QPR and, and quite a well-documented philosophy that's, that's got quite good success amongst technical players is very tight and technical. And a lot of the drills we do are very technical based um it definitely lacks um some extensive nature probably earlier on in the pyramid with the younger ones um so so then the kind of the the questions you're asking the coaches and the conversations you're having is how do we 
how do we then prepare for that extensive nature of the game and also prepare them for the, the next stage of the pyramid, the, the 23s, the first team, because you need to make sure they're physic physically ready as well. So you can, you can obviously do the isolated physical work on a, on a Tuesday and a Thursday whenever you want to do the max speed running work and get, your, and get your sprint distance in and get your exposures in, but that's only going to take you so far with the time you have. So you're right. The question then is how do we then integrate that into the coaching, which, which is a tricky one. And I think you know, it's, it's, it's always challenging and it's always to make sure they're ready for the next level. You're always asking that question. So Ben, the, the contextualized scenarios then of max speed is something that you're particularly interested in, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think as Ross touched upon, it's important to have that relationship with your coaches, educate them about why we need to prepare our players in a certain way. If you're only ever doing small-sided practices, then you're effectively never preparing your athlete for a scenario on a Saturday, right? Always preparing for the worst-case scenario. So we need to get our high-speed high running volume in, we need to get our sprinting exposures in. And I think for coaches, the more we can integrate stuff into their practices, the more they're going to get on board with the stuff we do. So it's about having that relationship with, I believe, Ross does have a good relationship with the coaches, trying to create a practice that can integrate technical work and, and, and the physical work we're doing. Um, and yeah, blending it all together as best as you can. So I think it's very important. Yeah, you're trying to really get those, those qualities and those aspects of max speed and other locomotive skills, you're trying to seamlessly trying to get them into the technical practices, aren't you? So it's, it's, you're not trying to crowbar in, this is a max speed run. Like from my experience of working in football and, and as a coach in, in Gaelic football, you want to practice that, you actually don't, eat, you're, not, you're practically not even aware and the players aren't aware that, right, I'm working on my max speed here. They think that they're, running to get into position or getting on the end of the ball, getting down the line for get a crossing, whatever it is. So they don't, they're not even aware that, okay, well, this is actually a really good physical practice as well uh, that you're working on your, your speed. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it was the J James Wild podcast listened to the other day. He was on Pacey Performance. And he was talking about his session structure and what he goes through, for example, how he preps and his jumps and it, and he goes through free sprinting and then his, I, I don't want to butcher his words here, but like contextual sprinting. Mm. So building in that max speed work into a position scenario. So in a football case, that might be striker setting, spinning and, and doing that 30 yard dash to finish. Um, I think just all those elements really help development of the player. And again, the relationship with the coach. Okay, brilliant. Lads, we Cheers, just on that point, yep. just on that point quickly, I think that, um, it's quite prevalent that the, the drills actually look like the, the 11 v 11 game will actually get those outcomes. And like whether you're doing a phase of play, whether you're doing 11 v 11, where you're doing a function, but if you've got unit work and they're in the realistic distances that they are on the pitch, typically you'll get the, the, the speed outcomes that you want. It's the, it's the tighter practices that become overloaded on, on the number of actions and technical actions that actually don't get the max speed and, and high speed running that you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. It's like you, you speak about the pitch geography all the time. Okay, we'll move on to just having a chat about breaking into, into the industry as a young sports science graduate. Um, and we'll just have, have a chat from there. We're speaking about a really important topic now just for the next few minutes of the podcast and, and YouTube video just about breaking into the industry and I think it's a hot topic at the moment because there's so many 
it's like the perfect storm. You've got a lot of graduates who want to get into the football industry. You've got universities and colleges churning out graduate after graduate every year. You've got football clubs who are looking to cut down on costs and, and the running costs of, of paying their staff and everything like that. Um, but you still have people who are mad to get into the industry. Ross, it kind of brings around the question then of, is it worth it? Is it worth actually doing, going through this whole process to try and get a full-time job in a professional football club? Interesting question, Giz, and uh, something that I've uh, deliberated a lot about in the last few years, seeing the amount of people that want to get into this saturated market now uh, because, of, because of, you know, essentially people that are really passionate about this industry and this job. It's, um, it's a fantastic job to be in, you know. There's unsocial hours. There's, there's not always glamour. It's not always rock and roll, uh, but it's if you're really passionate about sport, then obviously that's where you want to be. You want to go to to work and enjoy it. And an honest question: If I would go into this market, if I'm starting a degree tomorrow or or applying tomorrow, would I apply for sports science and SNC in this crowded market? I'm not sure. I'd definitely go into do some sort of performance, some sort of management, some sort of leadership role. Ultimately, that's that's what I like doing and like developing teams. Would it be in a, in a football, SNC sports science department? I'm I'm not 100% sure. Now I love my job. I go to work every day, and I, it's not work for me. It's a passion. I work with great people. I'm in a great environment. But my honest answer is: Is it worth it right now? I'm not sure. It's really interesting because you're saying that, and you've worked with. Chelsea Football Club, QPR, Aspire Academy in Qatar, you know, world-renowned academy all over the world. And, and yet that is your answer of some uncertainty there about whether you would take the same path or not. So that's quite interesting because for people who are then really starting out, who will have to go through a long process of doing internships, getting experience, investing a lot of money, uh, it may not be the right path. And so for you, Ross, is that, is that a money thing? Is that a wage thing? Is it, you know, you enjoy high performance and maybe you could simply apply that into business instead if, if you had the chance again? What, what is it? I think it's, it's a realism thing about how far you're going to be able to go in a certain industry. And I think that I've been very fortunate in my career to have a few breaks and, and to get where I am today. And I'm very proud of where I am. Um, and, and I love developing people. I love developing myself and, and being passionate. But I think you look at lots of different other industries and you look in town. We're, we've got London on our doorstep where we live and the business industry. Lots of high thrive thriving companies that you could slot similar principles into it and, and develop teams and, to, and to, to, to grow different businesses. So I think it's a realism of where you can go. Um, and of course, financial thing has to come into it as well. I mean, everyone's looking to, to live a comfortable life. It doesn't have to be hugely rich and, and luxurious, but you know, the financial side comes into that. So it, it's just a poison question. I don't think a lot of people say out. And I think it's, it's good to be honest. Yeah, and it's interesting because... If you, if you think about it now to, to break into the industry and to get that chance, and I, I feel very lucky to have come into QPR initially as an internship and then you work hard and you, you get a full-time role. But a person to make it now in a football club coming out, they're going to have to be really dedicated. They're going to have to be smart. They're going to have to be talented, going to have to put in the hours. They're going to have to have the qualifications, uh, academic qualifications, but also the accreditations. And Ross, it's 
it asks a lot, doesn't it, in this in this industry to actually break it break into it. Yeah, it asks a lot of time of people and a lot of like money before you've even got into a paid role. And like the good thing for people in my position now is that you have like so many willing people wanting to come into certain roles that you can essentially handpick the best ones. And um, and the th- I know there's a big talk about internships and the UKCA have come out and they've said that it's not right that unpaid internships happen. They need to be remunerated at the right level and they've set minimum guidelines. But I'm sorry, it's not us you should be talking to. We're getting kind of guidelines off the CEO of the club, off what finances we have to offer. We, we have very limited um, control over the company's finances so they can put out stuff all they want but you know that is part and parcel of industries where clubs have limited resources because we want to improve services there's people willing to come in and at at the right time of their career do it for expenses only or for good experience to hopefully get them get them a good job and 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 a good example is is ben obviously coming into our department this year who's gone from internship to to a paid role so it, it is successful for the right person yeah, it's interesting because, as you say from the outset, that we're not running down the industry. We're not running down to positions because we go to work every day and you don't feel like you're, it's a job or, or it's, it's work. You're turning up, you get to go out on the pitch with young players. It's about development, about performance. And there's so many good things happening in clubs nowadays. It feels brilliant. It feels very lucky to work in an area that's all of our passion. So... There's a lot of really good things happening also, of course, but I think it's good to be truthful about some of the challenges. With, with all that in mind, Ross, I'm just wondering, how did Ben end up in this role? How did he get in that then? What, what, did he fall through the, 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 the floorboards or, or slip through the cracks or what happened? I have to be honest because, like I said, I'm trying to be as truthful as I can to people. Ben came in and, you know, listen, if the right person comes along and you value that person and the club will, you know, find the way of of trying to keep good people, especially if someone wants to progress a department. And we've had interns in the past that have done internships and like the end of the season gone on to other stuff. But, you know, we essentially Ben went from an intern in the same season to a, like to, to a paid role. So, you know, that's credit where credit's due. And maybe Ben will want to give a bit more insight into his journey there and, and how he got into, into the role. Like the whole unpaid internship thing is obviously an interesting topic. Like, I'm a believe, I think it's uh, Mike Boyle that's talked about it. And if you're, if you're an undergrad and you can't add value to a company and you're trying to learn and, and extract knowledge off that person, then why would you be paid for that? It, I think you could argue that, right? So you need to pick the correct timings to do that unpaid internship. So throughout my three years of uni, I did for three to four internships, all unpaid. Off the back of one, I started getting some paid work. And again, that's just from doing a good job, etc. But I'd go down to a football club, um, work at a pub to pay for my train fare down to a football club. Um, and I felt I was lucky enough for them to bring me into the football club because they didn't have to do that. Um, so I think especially at university undergrads need to be advised to while you have your student loan etc and you have performance teams there some some high level performance teams and athletes at your disposal they need to be advised to go out and actually exploit that opportunity and and work for free and build your craft because you can't go into a club after your after your undergrad and expect to be hired when you like you can't take a warm-up with 20 people uh, people, like I know students that 
after their undergrad can't take a well-structured warm-up for 10 minutes. Um, I think those are the things you need to repetitively do throughout your undergrad to give yourself a better chance because everyone has an undergrad, right? And the accreditation is obviously other, that's another part of the parcel, but I think it's, as I've written for a piece for Kieran, it's that, it's that practical experience, that hands-on, getting your hands dirty coaching that's going to stand you in good stead. Yeah, I listened to a really good podcast a few days ago, Ross, actually, on that by the Football Fitness Federation, where, which, is, which is a great organization. They go and interview, um, isn't it Mick Clegg, who was the first kind of SNC power coach that went into Manchester United first team squad and he was dealing with David Beckham and Roy Keane and you know in the in the latter years then Cristiano Ronaldo and Rooney and everything like that and, and it's fascinating and he was saying that because he worked in schools right all over Manchester initially and he was making the really good point that if you're doing a degree in sports science or SNC in order to work for Manchester United first team or Chelsea first team you're in it for the wrong reason. They said that you need to be able to go in and coach a classroom of kids and young kids to, you know, to do whatever sport or activity or fitness or whatever it is and enjoy that and love it, but also be good at it. And I think in my own experience, I started off working with kids of all ages, like all the way down to age four and five in, in you know, the, the smallest classrooms in primary school. And in ways, that's the essence of coaching. That's the real coaching where you're teaching skills to really young kids because you have to break down everything so much. And that's where you build a passion and you develop coaching skills. Yeah, 100% kids. I think the best coaches have worked across different age groups. I don't think they've necessarily been in a rush to get to the glamour of the first team either. I think they've learned their craft for years and years. And like Benny said, invested in time um, early on in their career, in their, their undergrad their masters or whatever education pathway they take and through different accreditations, but then got lots of experience of working with different age groups, different sports maybe, um, or if you want to focus on one sport, again, up and down academy structures and had a real solid philosophy and coaching process before you kind of go into that, that top end job. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on it anyway. Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of streams to it in my mind that obviously you get the coaching experience you must get the qualifications, you know, you need a degree or master's or whatever it is, but also you need to network, you need to contact people. Like I always say to people that if they're contacting me uh, and they're looking for internships or work experience, don't stop after one email or one message, make sure that you contact again and again. And when you're contacting somebody in a club, instead of telling them why it would be great for you to get a role in that club, Tell that person what you can actually add into that organization. So why QPR or Chelsea need that person. So what you can add to the whole department and the football club and, and the other sporting, sporting organizations. They're, they're really important things, aren't they, I think? Yeah, and, and the only way now that we take on interns, really, we, we don't really need to advertise anymore. So we've, we've got people coming through on Twitter. Um, ben messaged me directly on his first thing on Twitter and just said, look, is there any opportunities? But for me, I reward that behavior. That's great behavior. So anyone who messes me like that's in with a chance of, of, of getting an interview and an internship. And I don't want to have to ask people to formally apply. If people want it quite badly then I think they'll be like you said active and then that networking um, and trying to get in, into the industry I think you have to be 
diligent and determined as well, don't you? I, I like when somebody contacts me and uh, follows it up. And also it's not a cut and paste job. It's like a dedicated mail to you or message to you. Um, and simple things about, you know, if they send over a CV that it looks good and there aren't like simple things like there aren't spelling mistakes and stuff like that. And you might think that's funny, but if you want to be a sports scientist in a, in a sporting club, then you have to be very diligent with data and, and details. Yeah, I mean, that, all that stuff goes, goes hand in hand and it's about having pride in your work, um, especially when you're working with data and, and, and with players and presenting stuff. You want real detail and, and people have a good eye. So I think that stuff from the, makes good impressions. Um, and yeah, and then you can back that up with hopefully meeting people in person and, and showing off your, your character and personality. Yeah, I think another thing to add, sort of jumping on what you said is like, I, I like the saying, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. So when you're an intern and you don't have the skills to maybe add value and you're the fly on the wall, fill up the waters well, fill up yeah. the protein shakes well. And then yeah. when you get your first opportunity to coach, do a good job, fill out the spreadsheets correctly. As you said, make sure the cover letter is excellent. Um, always be polite, ask questions at the right time. Don't pepper people with questions when they're working. I think there's a, it goes a long way sort of having a right character around the environment because no, no, sorry, Ben. I was just going to say that I think that like you're right, be polite and and um, and be respectful, but always like respect that you know everyone has a good opinion, and you know I think the way the way that we work here, especially at QPR, like it maybe took a couple of months, maybe for you to come in and and find the appropriate voice and the right time to say it, yeah, but sure. I think always give people a voice. And like Ben has added within nine months of his um, internship and job role here, so much to our department and so much um, thought space and things to improve on and stuff for next season and, and way to develop. And, you know, everyone can come in with fresh eyes. So from, from a, a leader's point of view or someone managing the, the department, the interns sometimes have some, some of the best ideas than some of your most experienced practitioners because they've been there doing the same thing for five, six years. Your interns coming in with fresh eyes, real academic, up-to-date academic knowledge if they're good and diligent and you can really drive the department on. Yeah, yeah sure. and when, when we ask our players to be diligent and um, watch the detail and clean their boots properly and act really well around the club and everything, so obviously then as a staff, we expect that of ourselves and of each other, don't we? we? We expect that we're on time and do things well. But as you say, Ross, then you want people to come in and in the right manner, challenge things and bring new ideas and bring new aspects to it. And like, if you think of it, going through, for instance, the UK SCA accreditation during your master's or right after it, it's kind of, a, it's quite a good thing to do because it's fairly academic. It's very rigorous and it can you can bring in new ideas and start challenging people in the club. Yeah, um, the UKCA obviously is a great platform and it gives people, like I always say, it gives people the minimum um, amount of knowledge and the, the standard expectation you want someone to come into a role with in terms of basic programme principles, basic coaching points and, and development and delivery of sessions. Um, might be good to get Ben's, like, thoughts on the UKCA because I did mine about 10 years ago so it's evolved a little bit now um, but just to get Ben's thoughts on what his current experience is going through that is and then we can maybe link that back to the max speed stuff Ben if that's all right. Yeah yeah for sure so um, in terms of the UKCA I sort of knew it was a prerequisite so you need your degree you need your masters and you need your UKCA to sort of stop your CVs getting put 
in the next pile where then you're not going to get an interview, right? So I started in uni sort of putting together my way of how I'm going to pass this assessment. So it's comprised of four, four components. Um, the weightlifting, I think the resources are out there to go and learn how to weightlift. I taught myself how to weightlift. Um, so I passed three of the four modules looking to pass my fourth one. Um, well, I would have without COVID uh, getting in the way, I think. You've got the speed and agility pliers. Again, the technical models are out there learn them and then it's about actually um practically applying that with with athletes yeah um you've then got your M multiple choice question do you have a good understanding of basic physiology and biomechanics and your case study can you program can you deliver a program to an athlete over a long period of time and that's the stuff in my opinion you can all do as an undergrad you can do the workshops and yes they're 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 expensive so i think i understand that some people can't do those but i think Overall, the assessment is achievable without them, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and the case study is about getting out there and, um, and coaching and, and programming and, and learning off mentors and what the best way to do things is. It's, it's, a good, it's a great journey. I think one of the problems or one of the issues that come out of the UK SEA is that they're, they're, quite, um, they're quite rigorous in that, well, this is the model that you must do and these are the important things technical model that you do on max speed or locomotive or whatever it is so ross when you bring then when you bring that into a club and into a practical and applied setting sometimes like those models don't always fit like we spoke about earlier that the most important thing is the technical practice and the football session and dealing with the coaches and they don't always fit into that applied setting. Yeah, I think it's a hard one for organisations like the UKSCA because they have to set a minimum standard of knowledge and delivery and execution of certain coaching cues that, that someone has to present on that day. Um, but yeah, going into then, like your, your learning doesn't stop there. Just because you've got a UKSCA accreditation doesn't mean you're a great S&C coach, sports scientist, because like your experience and actually like seeking alternative CPD and listening to some real good, like um, Ben mentioned James Wilde is a fantastic um, resource for speed development. You've got Paul Caldbeck, um, who's doing some great stuff within contextual sprinting in football. I was very lucky to be at university being taught by John Goodwin, who for me is biomechanically one of the best I've ever seen and listened to. And I had him regularly week to week. So you've got all these other alternative um, CPD methods that you can go and sort. But the biggest thing is, is your experience and working with different players and what works and what doesn't. So you know, delivering certain sessions and technical sessions around speed, I've questioned them. I've questioned around A skips, B skips on their transferability. I like them from a scaffolding perspective of different shapes, but their transfer when you can only do them like once or twice a week within a warm up on how much repetition you can get them into and how much transfer that has into the sport may be something that, that is questioned. And maybe something Ben has a bit more insight in as he's the lead CPD researcher at the minute being on, being on furlough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting that I remember just before we were we were finished up with, with COVID or be due to COVID, we, I, I was doing a little S&C session with the younger kids, I think maybe the 13-year-olds, and we were doing some marching and stuff like that. And one of the underage academy coaches, Akin Lord, who I'm sure is listening, listening said to me, what are you doing mate i looked over and you're doing marching with the kids and he said i'm done with sports science that's it i'm finished i'm finished no more <laughs> obviously joking but you know it, it it's a point to always remember isn't it that educating the coaches the reason why you do stuff is is so important ben isn't it 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, like with the UKSCA, I did the uh, the speed plows is the one workshop I did. And I did it a few years ago. It's probably my first insight into what actually is max sprinting, you know, from what you've seen on the TV or whatever, like the kinetics and kinematics that underpin all that. But I think, as Ross said, you've got to go way beyond that. So I've spent the last two years listening to um, Stuart McMillan, um, JB Morian, Tony Holler, uh, as I said, James Wilde, Jonas Adodu, listen to these people because in effect, they're the, they're the best at their craft and you're going to develop your ideas as you go. And again, stuff like, you know, drills and et cetera, that's a topic in itself. But you're, you're going to build your own philosophy around these things. And I think you should never be one end or the other end of the scale. Like most top coaches, I believe, have an appropriate opinion and, 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 and context and application of these, these methods. Yeah. And Ben, here, sorry, just to jump in there on that point, that's probably where we bring slightly contrasting views to, to the party there, where, you know, a lot of those guys, I feel, have great technical knowledge from an athletic sense and, and their technical model and how they teach that's fantastic. But then the question is applying that into football. And I know people say, oh, well, you know, football people will say that. We always think it's a special sport. I'm not saying that, but it's slightly different. How do we then transfer those technical models? Are they transferable? And is it worth the time spent on those drills to actually improve the performance? They're the questions that maybe me and you have probably on a weekly basis, I would say. <laughs> Ross, you, you got the greatest education yeah. and, and CPD of all. You were in the same office as the great Martin Boucher. Yeah. Yeah, and and I've just you know I've just been on Twitter having a having a debate with the training ground guru around a, <laughs> an article that got released. But listen, Martin Boucher told me don't worry about them protein shakes. Best thing I took from him he said a bit of cheese, a bit of bread, and a bit of red wine. That's all you need after recovery in a session. <laughs> it's the French way, and I like it the most. Hey, listen, the French sports scientists are top. Don't worry about that. <laughs> enjoy enjoy your food, enjoy your drink. Players need to as well at times, and yeah, good, great advice. I think it, it it's quite interesting because. As you, as you guys know, I've just started into the PhD uh, um, pathway. And it's funny because it used to be that in order to get into sport, you had to have a degree. Then it was a master's. Then it was a master's plus accreditations. Then it was multiple accreditation bases like you have, Ross. Now it's nearly getting to the stage, well, well where's your PhD? Now, I'm not saying, obviously, applied people all need to have PhDs. And, and that's not the way forward, I don't think. But probably in a club, you will have somebody in the sports science department with a PhD eventually. And they can kind of have a look at the research, the innovation, checking the data, checking how you're using monitoring protocols and everything like that. And it's probably, it's probably a next step for a lot of people as well, isn't it? Yeah, things are ever evolving and, and all the time. Now, most people that go in and get a paid job, like... I think masters is probably a minimum requirement now. And that's not yeah. just me. I just think there's so many people doing a masters that if someone doesn't have a masters, they're probably, they're probably not getting an interview based on the CV, which is, which could be counter argued by their experience and that might still get them into the door, but things are moving on. And again, it's the amount of money now that's being invested in these careers for again, the opening question is for what return, you know, for yeah. a, a passionate job that we love to be in. Um, yeah. I guess it just depends on where you put your values and morals in your, in your work profession. Yeah, absolutely. I think the final point to mention is that having somebody like that, or in other words, really having people with different experiences coming from different 
sports uh, coming from different universities, younger people in the department, slightly older, more experienced. It all leads in, Ross, to that kind of departmental environment, doesn't it? And you, having the right kind of setup there of the multidisciplinary team and, and getting the right people involved. Yeah, first things first is you need to make sure your department is, is a good, innovative um, proactive uh, department with with like you say lots of different types of personnel that can add different things to the party so experienced people people that have got good emerging knowledge people that are hungry people in different um, stages of their career but it's also about uh, creating a department that's forward thinking everyone has a voice there's a platform there to question anything and everything in the right way and I, and I hope people that work in that department actually believe that's what we do and that's what I say because it's one thing saying it and I've been through in a department where it hasn't been the case um so it's one thing saying it and one thing doing it and i think we do that quite well um but then you're right it's about making good relationships outside of your department and that's how essentially you're going to give the best service to the kids because you're working well with the coaches in your performance department the analysts kind of contribute to you and you're working well with those the nutritionist the psychologist the um the you know all the coaches the managers the senior management yeah very essential so learning how to have good relationships with different personnel is essential to success and, and high performance yeah brilliant okay i think we, we leave it on that point ross i think that's a really pertinent point and the most important thing to think about i think is the, the people and having good people involved and that's always the most important when it comes to high performance in anything okay guys we leave it at, at that for today um, really interesting chat. Thanks, Ben, for coming on for the first time. We'll get you on again, and I'm sure Ross will have you on. Just remember to any SNC or sports science people out there, whether you're in football or trying to break in, head over to the website dailysportscience.com. Use the code FOOTBALLSS, all in capitals. So in other words, like football sports scientists. So FOOTBALLSS, all higher, uh, upper capitals. And you'll get a good chunk off subscription there. We put up loads of videos and blogs and lots of discussion. We have our WhatsApp group. We have loads of resources, locomotive stuff. Um, and we're building the, the site and the content all the time. Ross Bennett is head of performance with QPR Academy and with DSS. And Ben has come in as sports scientist. So, men, we've got a lot of good content up there now, don't we? Yeah, loads going up, kids, and hopefully we get Ben a bit more involved in, in DSS as well and get him duplicating some of his great work from QPR and, and, and giving good service to the members, but loads going up, loads throughout this period. Okay, brilliant. So remember, subscribe to the podcast, go over to the website, and we'll chat to you next week.